everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 34 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about American Beauty on your I Think You Just Became My Personal Hero podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. This week, we're joined by our friend Vivian from Multiverse Radio, who is the supremely insightful co-host of the podcast Burger of the Week and Fork and Bullshirt. Vivian, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited you're here. I've been listening to Fork and Bullshirt, and you are so smart, and you always have mm-hmm. something wonderful to say about everything. <laughs> oh, it just feels weird to have someone, like, people as smart as you call me insightful and, and intelligent. Yeah. <laughs> so why, why was this the film that you picked out on the list that you wanted to cover? Well, I watched this movie for the first time when I was in high school, mm. so between like 2004 and 2008. And I just loved it. I don't know. There's just something about this movie that every time you watch it, you see something Mm. more. Um, And it keeps you thinking throughout the movie. Like it's not a simple, you just sit back and relax and, you know, let it go kind of movie. It's you really have to think about it, which I really appreciate. So this was the one. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely agree with that. The the first watch is impactful as you're learning the story as you go through and then the second time the third time it it, it unpicks itself for you which is lovely Mm. Mm -hmm. it uh it rewards you for watching it several Mm. times i Mm. wish i had gotten a chance to watch it again but i only got to watch it once this week so i feel like this is definitely i know i say this a lot that i'm always going to go back and rewatch stuff but i feel like this is one where i definitely will good So, Mandy, why did you never watch this movie? Okay, so this movie came out in, I think, September of 1999, which was the beginning of my senior year in high school. And that was when I was really, really kind of digging into my conservativeness and slightly fundamentalist viewpoints. And I always assumed this movie was about an old creepy man having an affair with a teenager. I don't know why that's why I thought the movie was about, but this whole time, that's what I thought this movie was about. And so given where I was as a senior in high school, this was just not a movie that I would ever have even considered watching. And then, you know, since then, since obviously my my viewpoints have changed and, you know, I have dramatically changed, it's just not something that's ever come up in my life again. I mean, there's so many movies out there to watch that this is just not one that ever made it to the top of the pile until now. Honestly, that makes sense because I thought the same thing when I sat down to watch it. I just assumed, okay, it's Kevin Spacey and he's going to have an affair with a teenager. That's kind of gross. Right. (laughs) But I figured... You know, it's it's gotten like so many awards. It's it's so popular that it must be better than just that right. concept. <laughs> and I'm glad to know I'm not the only one who thought this movie was about something completely different than it's actually about. So, thank you for validating my wrongness, Vivian. <laughs> I saw this film at the cinema. Um, I think we can probably all agree I've never really grown up and one of the things I like to do on my birthday is go and see a movie and go out for a nice Chinese meal or burgers and milkshakes or something tasty and this was uh, my 19th birthday when I was off at university so people I'd not long met uh, we went and saw this film 
And I was just astounded all the way through it, just the, the beautiful shots coming at you, the unraveling story, exactly as you said, Vivian, like as you go through, you learn more about each person and a bit of the, the secrets that aren't revealed to you from the beginning. Um, and then then we went out for a meal and just discussed it all the way through, which is one of my favourite things to do with a movie, is sit and talk to friends about it. So, yeah, it was a oh, wonderful experience. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like talking about movies, not at all. <laughs> Mm-mm. <laughs> So, Matthew, before we dive into our discussion, why don't you tell us a little bit about the movie? American Beauty was released in 1999. This was the film debut of director Sam Mendes and writer Alan Ball. It features an all-star cast with Kevin Spacey and Annette Bening as the leads. When Alan Ball started writing the film in the early 1990s, it was originally conceived as a play, uh, partly inspired by the trial of Amy Fisher, who was an underage girl who had shot her lover's wife. Eventually, he realised this would work better as a film, uh, then had a, a more fully fleshed supporting cast, each of whom could have their own stories. Lester's examination of his own life is drawn from Ball's change from TV writing to film writing around that time. The original version of the script and the film had bookend scenes where Ricky and Jane were prosecuted for Lester's murder, having been framed by Ricky's father. These were felt to be unnecessary and removed in post-production. The film is the penultimate film by cinematographer Conrad L. Hall. He worked for much less than his normal fee, as did Kevin Spacey and Annette Benning, and he coached the rookie Mendes through a number of technical aspects when working on a motion picture. The composed, distant style of shooting was something Mendes de- deliberately wanted, so it generated more tension in each scene. American Beauty was nominated for eight Academy Awards and won five of them, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Cinematography. It had a budget of $15 million, but earned just over $130 million in North America and $226 million internationally, partially benefiting from the fact it was still on at the cinema during the awards season. One of the interesting things that I read about this is that uh, Mendez is one of only six people who have won an Academy Award um, for Best Director on their Mm. debut movie, which I think is pretty awesome. Yeah, that's quite an accomplishment. (laughs) Yeah, you can you can definitely see it. And and the the point about removing the book ending scenes, it's interesting how much the film seems to have come together in editing. That before that it was it was planned as something slightly different and and taking the, out the framing device it m- improves it no end. Oh, absolutely! I can't imagine this movie with those bookend scenes. It just changes the tone of the movie for me mm. to even think about them being there. Yeah, I think I've seen them on a DVD at some point. Really? They, they, they actually filmed though. It was all planned. That was going to be part of it, and they, they've completely trashed it. Which, yeah, it's, it's so much better now. I actually watched the commentary um, mm-hmm. by the director and uh, and the writer for this movie, um, just in preparation for this podcast. And you're right that a lot of this movie came in post production. Oh, um, a lot of dialogue was cut out. A lot of little scenes were cut out. Um, like for example, a lot of the dialogue from uh, Allison Janney, who plays uh, Mrs. Fitz was cut out entirely. Um, And some of her scenes with uh, Chris Cooper, her husband in the movie, uh, were cut out just because the director said that they did so much in silence that they didn't really need to have those scenes at all. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. They did do a lot in silence, for sure. Oh, yeah. So 
So we like to give a brief synopsis of the movie in case folks are listening who haven't seen it, which I know some of you guys do. And this movie is about so much. It's hard to distill it down to something brief, but I did my best. And so if you, if you take it at its most bare bones, American Beauty is about an unhappy suburban father and his midlife crisis. But there's so much more going on here. Yeah, that sounds accurate-ish, you know? You're right. There's really just too much going on that you need to watch the movie or read, like, a one-page summary of it. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you haven't seen it and you would like to watch along with us, we also like to tell everybody how we watched it this go-round. I watched it on Amazon Prime. It's available in the U.S. on Amazon Prime. Vivian, how did you watch this? I watched this on Blu-ray. Um, actually, my partner Jason has it, so I was lucky enough to see it in a beautiful, beautiful, crisp Blu-ray. <laughs> um, but it is also available on Canadian Netflix. So if you're in Canada, you're in luck. Very cool. And Matthew, how I, did you watch it? I watched it on DVD. Which because I think you it's, own it, of course. Yeah, I think it's one of my earliest DVDs. Because um, I'm sure I had a, a, a insert in there at some point, and there's no no insert, so it's gone somewhere to the mist of time. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you've loved it so hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, going into the film, Mandy, what were your expectations for American Beauty? Oh, this is so hard. Um, like I said up top, I legitimately thought this movie was about Kevin Spacey having an affair with Mina Suvari. So, other than that. I, I didn't have any other expectations. I had no idea that's not what the movie was about. And so it was kind of weird trying to get myself in the, the right headspace when I was watching it. Um, but I really thought I was just going to watch Kevin Spacey being creepy. <laughs> Which I'm sure he can do quite well. <laughs> well, and he did do quite, quite well in, in parts of this. Um, yeah. But yeah. Uh, it, it was definitely different it was not what i expected when i did watch it so okay so what's your experience of kevin spacey and, and the rest of the cast sam mendez annette benning and so on from from other films before this mendez nothing annette benning nothing shocking <laughs> i was actually shocked by that when i looked up her filmography um i mean i know her name and i know her face but i've never seen her in anything other than this movie that i just watched this okay. week which was actually really shocking to me uh, Kevin Spacey, I've actually seen a few things that he's been in, uh, Seven, A Time to Kill, Pay It Forward, K-Pax, and Superman Returns, which is a very eclectic collection of movies. I'm amazed you've seen K-Pax. Really? That's a really <laughs> random one in that list. It was about an alien. And yeah, it's a great I, film. Yeah, it, it, was, it was good. I don't know why I saw it. I probably saw it on the shelf at Blockbuster one Friday and was like, hey, this looks weird. Let's watch it. <laughs> the X makes it sound cool. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Thora Birch, again, she's one of those who I'm really just more familiar with her because she's an actress around my age. And so I'm accustomed to seeing her face and stuff. Um, but really, when I looked at her filmography, the only stuff that I've actually seen her in uh, were Now and Then, which is a movie I've seen over and over and over again because I love it. Hocus Pocus, of course. And then she did a Lifetime movie called Homeless to Harvard, which was about a – it was a true story of a girl named Liz Murray who was homeless and ended up going to Harvard. 
And other than that, I haven't actually seen her in anything. And I was shocked. I expected that list to be huge. I haven't seen a lot of these movies, actually. Like, I, I've seen Now and Then, I think. Um, and Hocus Pocus I watched recently, and I was really not impressed. Um, <laughs> I know it's, like, a favorite of, like, a it's a Halloween favorite for a lot of people, and I just thought it was terrible. It, it doesn't um, hold up to you. If, if you had seen it when you were younger, it would be sentimental and wonderful mm. to you now. Yeah, I saw that. it too late in life. <laughs> I th- yeah. Yeah, I mean, because it's definitely very young mm-hmm. and silly. Yeah, but I've seen Seven and I've seen Pay It Forward. I haven't seen the other ones. I actually thought K-Pax was about a dog, so it goes to show <laughs> how much I know. <laughs> okay. Th- there's a I dog seen... in it, so... Oh, okay. All right. I was partially right. <laughs> if you haven't seen A Time to Kill, I definitely recommend it. It's great. Although it does have Matthew McConaughey in it. He... Got better. <laughs> a lot better. <laughs> he did. He yeah. did. This, this was early McConaughey, early Sandra Bullock, but it was still really good. But I also just really like the book and the story behind it, so I'm probably a little biased. Is that John Grisham? Okay. Yes. Now, Mandy, I wanted to ask, do you have any experience with Alan Ball or Sam Mendes? Uh, Mendes, no. I actually didn't look up Alan Ball. Let me do that really quick. Okay. Yeah, Alan Ball, this really does seem to have launched him properly. He's done a lot since, but before this, not so much. Alan Ball was an executive producer of True Blood, and I watched the first four seasons of that. Yeah, I watched the first three, maybe? I don't know. (laughs) Around the time where they got fairies, I just dropped right off. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the fairies were actually in the book, so I was okay with those. (laughs) It was after that where it just jumped the shark and I couldn't handle it anymore. Yeah, I'm looking at his list and that's the only thing um, that I've seen. I, I haven't seen Six Feet Under, which I, I see that he's done. Um, and I haven't even heard of some of these other things. Okay. So. Yeah, it's interesting you saying that you were expecting this to be Kevin Spacey being creepy and having an affair and so on because it's almost hard watching him in this because it's, it's so different from his other characters. He always plays this really confident person out, you know, running other things for people. He's in charge and doing things. And in this, he's supposed to be not. So there's a uh, weird juxtaposition going on there. So, Mandy, did you enjoy American Beauty? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> I did not like it. I didn't love it. Okay. Um, but par- I think part of that is just because it took me about halfway through the movie to really kind of reframe my perspective and understand what I was watching versus what I was expecting to be watching. Hmm. Um, and, and so I do think that I need to rewatch this. And I think if I rewatch it, I'm, I'm going to enjoy it a lot more because I enjoyed the last half of the movie significantly more than the first half. And I think that's because I was watching it for what it was. And so now if I go back and start from the beginning and watch it for what it is versus what mm. I think it is, I really do think I would enjoy it. No, I share that same sort of feeling. I do remember watching it the first time and really wondering, okay, where is this going to go? And not really being into the movie because I was thinking too hard about what is this? What's going on? What's happening? What's going to happen? 
I all I knew is that he was going to die. But we don't even know at the beginning of the movie how he's going to die. If it's going to be murder, if he's just going to fall down the stairs and break his neck like an accident, if he's going to have a heart attack. And I was thinking too much and not letting myself just enjoy the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was having a hard time with the with it at the beginning because the opener was really super creepy because it opens, you know, with that shot from the home video that mm-hmm. Ricky's taking of Jane. And then it immediately skips to this like really happy-ish voiceover from Kevin Spacey talking about how he's going to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but the tone of it is so completely different. And then you get that really upbeat happy music. And so I was confused. I didn't really know what I was supposed to be feeling or thinking at this point. Plus, I'm still expecting it to be about creepy Kevin Spacey. And so when you put all of those things together, it was just a hot mess of confusion for me. (laughs) Yeah, I can understand. Mm. Watching it the first time, you're not sure quite what's going to happen. It's going to seem really seedy. And, and Wes Bentley's all weird and you're not sure what's going on the second time because you know how it turns out you don't have that tension. So you can really take a lot of it in. Yeah. Wes Bentley is still kind of creepy. Even after watching it several times, I just there's just something about his eyebrows and, and his, his very intense stare that always makes yeah. me a little uncomfortable at the beginning of the movie. He's so Which, intense. You know, it's good acting, right? That's what he's supposed to be doing. I think that's just his face, though, because he looks the same way in American Horror Story. <laughs> I'm guessing that's probably really effective in that show too (laughs) yeah um he showed up in uh the hotel season and i don't think that man has aged he looks exactly the same now as he did 10 years ago it's ridiculous (laughs) well 18 years ago oh my god God, i'm so old (laughs) (laughs) so the biggest imagery in this movie are roses and rose petals. Can either of you kind of explain what that symbolism is really for? Because I didn't understand it based just on the context of the movie itself. I did do a little bit of reading afterwards and found out that there is a particular breed of roses called American Beauty that are pretty and appealing in appearance, but it's prone to rot underneath at the roots and branches. Which, of course, you know, makes sense, you know, when you look at this movie, because it's the perfect suburban yeah. family, not. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the title of the movie and, and the idea of, of roses in general. Why were there rose petals everywhere? I mean, there were rose petals coming out of his mouth. They were falling from the ceiling. They were coming out of the fridge. She was in the bathtub full of them. And I just didn't get it. Am I just, like, missing some beautiful artistic thing? I think that the roses symbolize a lot of different things, to be Mm. honest. I don't think that there's one thing that it's trying to get across to us. Because we're seeing them in a lot of different contexts. Like, you see them, and they're associated with Carolyn, because she takes care of her beautiful roses. And she's always bringing them inside into these lovely vases. And she's also wearing a like a cardigan at one point that's covered in roses, but it's very muted. Mm. Um, so there's this association with Carolyn and like that kind of love that's, that's been there for a long time, but that is obviously strained. 
And then you see the roses with um, Angela, and those are very sexually charged. So it's, like, Mm. representing, like, lust. um, And so I don't think that there's one particular meaning, but when I was watching it this time, I was struck by the idea that, like, yes, these roses are beautiful, but they're also ordinary. They're not rare. Like, they're everywhere in this movie, and just everything that Angela's feeling about her fear of of being ordinary, well, she is, you know? She's an ordinary high school girl, Um, Mm. just like all of these roses in the movie are very ordinary. Okay, that's that's interesting and very insightful. (laughs) And (laughs) I, I have a really hard time with symbolism sometimes, because... I think that part of my brain just doesn't always work. And I was stuck on, in the beginning of the movie, when they introduced the concept of roses to us, it was because Carolyn has all of these roses. And so it was weird to me that then these things that I immediately associate with Lester's wife are suddenly becoming so front and center with his fantasy of this teenager and I couldn't wrap my head around it, and I couldn't quite understand what they were trying to make me feel or see with yeah. that, if that makes sense. Yeah, because with Carolyn, she's pruning them, she's putting them in eggshells and hummus, whatever that mixture was. Um, <laughs> and and she, like you say, cutting them, taking them inside, keeping them very precise and, and arranged. With the young girl, it's... yeah. You know, the, the blooming flower, the the red passion and so on. And then you see the, the great shot where they're falling down on Lester when he's in bed and he's got this sort of pool of red around him and he's smiling upwards. Mm-hmm. And each different character brings a slightly different symbolism of what's coming and what's going on with them in the thing, in the film. So it's used in, in such a nice way, whether it's the, the colour or the way they're looked after or what the the opening of the flower represents. Okay. Yeah, I wish that there was sort of one... <laughs> meaning in a way i would love it to be cohesive but i don't think that it is mm. and it's it's these sort of things that why this is one of the films i can point to and say okay this is art this is there there is stuff to interpret and take out of this there's stuff that's shot beautifully stuff that uh, resonates on different levels as well as just being a film that you can sit mm-hmm. for a couple of hours and watch and go away maybe enriched maybe having uh, thought about something in a different way but it is also beautiful and has things you can you can really think about and dive into. And the roses are just so beautiful. In the shots, they're oh, mm. just gorgeous. Especially that shot of Angela on the ceiling, uh, where yeah. she's moving so slowly, just surrounded by rose petals. Oh, so gorgeous. Yeah, it's got a whole kind of Neptune rising thing going on with it. It's lovely. Mm-hmm. I actually, um, in the commentary... Um, Sam Mendez said that during that scene, because it was shot in, I think it was 120 frames, she Mm. actually had to move really quickly. So she was like flapping her (laughs) arms up and down, um, so that it would come out really nicely. But, oh, it, it really did. I like it. It's (laughs) beautiful. So as we go through the film, there's, uh, I'd say there's lots of, there are all these shots and things that I, I can talk about, but there's one within the story where Ricky talks about the bag playing with him, wanting to come and fly and showing that there's such beauty in the world. And and that scene often leaves me cold because I, I don't see what he sees in this shot of this bag. Does it resonate deeper with either of you? No. 
Uh, All right, I'll be the outlier. Um, It does with me in a Mm. way. Every time I watch it, I just, I find myself captivated, I guess. Not necessarily by the bag, but by his emotion and his interpretation of it. Right. Because, of course, I look at it and I think, okay, it's a bag. Like, it's a bag floating in the wind. I get it. It's, It's lovely. But he's just so moved by it and so mm. i'm moved by his emotion i think okay. more so than yeah. the actual film mm-hmm. okay nice. I, I can see that i think i was mostly distracted during that scene because i realized that there's a meme of it or somebody had posted a video of that fairly recently that i had seen and so i was distracted trying to figure out where i've seen this bag before <laughs> i never did figure it out by the way oh but I need closure. You have to find out where. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, it, it was just coming across as like melodramatically artsy. Mm. And yeah. I don't really do melodramatic artsy stuff very well. I, I'm one of those people who, when I go to a museum and I see it, like 30 foot canvas that's been painted solid blue that cost five million dollars and i'm like i don't understand this you know and that's kind of how i feel about the bag okay so don't take you on a date to a modern art museum (laughs) got it yes (laughs) i i always steal a steve martin moment when when i see things like that in art museums and i go i just love the way he's holding her (laughs) <laughs> and and one day we might watch the film that's from. <laughs> okay, I'm laughing to pretend like I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Not a clue. It's probably a movie I haven't seen yet. <laughs> I do believe that that scene has been kind of made fun of in several shows. I, I think that Family Guy made fun of it at one point. Yeah, I could see um, that. Mm. Yeah, it, it's one of those scenes that... I think it works really well when you're actually really into the movie, but outside of the movie, you sort of think about it and you go, oh, yeah, it's just a bag. <laughs> He's so pretentious. Like, not that big of a deal. <laughs> yes, pretentious. That's the word I was trying to think of. Yeah. <laughs> now, how does that work for you when Lester at the end is repeating a lot of the same words as Ricky from that moment? See, now that worked for me. I appreciated. Lester's new perspective on life, I guess. It's not life, obviously, because he's not alive anymore, but Hmm. I felt like it made more sense in context because it was more relevant than it was to the bag. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Terrible with art, you guys. No, completely agree with that. Mm. (laughs) When you're talking about the bag, you're you're like, okay, there's beauty in it, but it is also wind that's just swirling because it's a corner of a building um but when he's talking about his life flashing before his eyes and seeing his child and his wife and great moments from his life and and realizing that the joy and glory he's found in it okay i can reconcile that and and then he even has the line of you have no idea what i'm talking about like the film lets you off if you don't quite get it yeah (laughs) yeah i guess that moment always kind of throws me off a little bit because i wonder if lester was shown that same video or if, like, and if Ricky told him that same speech that he told Jane, because it's just so close to the same thing mm. that 
I can't help but wonder, like, did that happen at some point? We just weren't shown that scene? Or is it just the writing? And then I get a little caught up in that. And uh, (laughs) I can't enjoy it as much as I would like to, I think. I think my interpretation of that is that it's just the writing and it's intended to be some sort of indication that this is what life really is. And that's why both Ricky and Lester have the same words, mm-hmm. like independent of each other. Yeah. yeah. Maybe yeah. that's me trying to be artsy. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that makes the most sense, really. I doubt that Ricky would have done that entire speech with Lester. I don't think they had that kind of relationship. <laughs> right. I do like that they have the same words, but it's different in the way that they talk about it. Because Ricky takes this comfort in knowing that there's there's more to life, that he doesn't need to be like afraid of his father. Um, and he says that he feels like his heart's going to cave in from all the beauty in the world. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, seems like that beauty is crushing him. Like, he can't embrace it in this kind of prison that he's living in. But then we hear Lester say that it makes him feel like his heart is going to burst. Like, he's being filled with all that beauty mm. beyond its capacity. And so he's opened himself up to it. He's... Throughout the course of this movie, he's released himself from this prison that we see him in, uh, and he's really able to see and accept all this beauty in the world. So I do like that they're slightly different because of the different places they are in their life. So yeah, that's that's a really nice catch. I hadn't thought about it in those two ways, but yeah, he's Lester's opening himself up to emotion because he's, as he says at the beginning, in a way, I'm already dead. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ricky is open to all this. He just doesn't care he just wants to observe everyone yeah lester is like a shadow of his former self uh Mm. at the beginning of this movie he's living his life on autopilot and it takes this journey where he finally awakens from this slumber of complacency for him to see all the beauty in the world and for him to actually be okay with his death i guess he seems okay with his death anyway (laughs) yeah yeah and it's it's almost the only way you could end the film if it was mm-hmm. that he goes through the thing with Angela at the end and then he realises he actually loves Jane and he sends Jane off on her way with his blessing but sort of reconciling with her a bit and then he reconciles with Carolyn, it would be a nice ending but it wouldn't be the same film. It wouldn't land so dramatically. Mm-hmm. It is a little bizarre and a little uncomfortable that almost having sex with Angela makes him reconnect with his daughter. Yeah. It's a little, yeah, it's a little uncomfortable, but I do, I do still enjoy it. Um, Just that turn from him being like, I'm going to have sex with Angela to becoming like very parental towards her. Sonny grabs the blanket and puts it around her. Kind of reminds you, oh, right, he could be her dad. Yeah. That's gross. (laughs) (laughs) And in, in another film... Obviously, it would go down that seat away, but the story is effectively he is a teenager going through a coming of age transition, mm-hmm. and and you could have done this plot with him being seventeen, eighteen, her being eighteen, nineteen, him having a crush on his sister's best friend, and and most of the rest of it stays the same, and he actually learns to face up to the neighborhood bully and overcome some sort of thing and becomes a, a happier person with himself, and then they end up together, and that would have been okay. Yeah, I never thought about that. You're right. Hmm. 
Because he is just, the way he sits in the car, the way he mopes to join them at the beginning and so on. Um, it's really, it, he could basically be a teenager. He even calls Carolyn mum at one time. <laughs> oh, mum's home. <laughs> I think that just means that there's really no difference between children and adults. It's just one day you actually have to pay your own bills. <laughs> <laughs> the worst part of adulthood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that the movie really does a good job of not going um, like straight for this kind of, well, maybe it's not the movie, maybe it's Kevin Spacey, but he does a great job of being really sincere and gentle in those final scenes with Mina mm. Savari, which keeps those scenes from becoming really lewd, I think. It's a very fine line to walk, because at that part of the movie, like, I could see how a lot of people can feel very uncomfortable th- thinking, oh, he really is going to sleep with her. Yeah. Like, it's not a fantasy anymore. This is really happening. And I, I love that they don't. I'm very glad that they don't, because I don't think we could really sympathize with this character if they actually did have sex so so i'm glad for that (laughs) so i actually think this is a really good time to bring up something somebody said our friend on twitter lashipa said uh she tweeted at us and said it's a weird thing to say i know but i appreciated how the father handled the young girl with regard to temptation not every man is that good Mm. and i struggle with the idea that lester saying no makes him a good man in that moment i mean yes obviously it was the right choice but given that there was a choice at all kind of means he's not and so i'm i have a little bit of a hard time with that what do you guys think i mean i i feel like lester might actually qualify as a really terrible human being even though he really is just being human i get that but the, so much of the movie is based on his fantasy life surrounding this high school girl. And I, I, I just I struggle with that a little bit. So do you, do you think he is being good? Does making the right choice make you good? I understand what you mean because him fantasizing about her at all makes him kind of a bad person. Right? Like, you shouldn't have fantasies about your daughter's friend. Mm. Right? And that he actually tries to make something happen is bad, obviously. Uh, She's a minor. She can't really consent to him. So it is very uncomfortable. It's obviously a bad thing. But in that moment, I think he just realizes, oh, she's not this temptress like I thought that she was. Um and that I fantasized that she was. And he makes that choice very easily, which is which is good. But it doesn't necessarily make him a good person. I agree with you there. I'm glad that he doesn't just go ahead with it. Because that would be obviously really bad. But yeah, it, it's, it doesn't make him a hero. <laughs> right. Right. That, you know what? That's exactly right. It doesn't make him a hero. That's, hmm. Those are the words that I was trying to, to come up with. I just, but thinking about it though, on the other hand, is that if he hadn't been fantasizing about Angela, if he, if he hadn't started down this path, then 
his life would have been very, very different. I mean, most of the changes that happened in his life were because of Angela, or at Mm -hmm. least because of his reaction to Angela. You know, that's why he started working out. That's why Mm. he started getting confidence and could speak out like at work when he was fine being fired and he blackmailed them and that sort of thing. None of these things would have happened and Lester would not have become the man that he was if he hadn't fantasized about her. And that's just, it, I have very complicated feelings about this movie and about Lester. <laughs> kind of where I am. The film makes a very conscious decision. Um, he fantasizes about her after he sees her. Or he, he imagines her on the ceiling. And obviously during the, the cheerleading dance, he imagines her there. The next interaction is that they come home. She goes to the kitchen to flirt with him. And she wants to assert some sort of sexual power over him. And he then fantasizes kissing her. She, he learns that she's staying. And, and he starts being a, a, a creep at that point, listening at the door and so on. But very much the, the film has tried to show us it's her going to him that's kicking off some of this because it's then him fantasizing about her in the evening he has the quarrel with carolyn that gives him the confidence to start working out more to do the thing at his job and and blackmail them and it's interesting that the film is it puts such importance on the difference between her being sexually active or this being her first time sort of saying it it would have gone differently had she done all these things that she says she's done her her lies about all the men she slept with and being a model and so on we would have treated that differently, or at least Lester would have treated that differently. I think either either way, he shouldn't have gone through with it. But the fact that she's not been with anyone before, that's the time at which he is ready to pull back and become a, an actual grown-up human being. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he stops acting like a teenager at that moment. Mm. He starts really acting like a father again. Yeah, like you say, he suddenly becomes more caring and thinking about, oh, I'll get you some food, oh, mm. yeah. And and she very quickly becomes, uh, puts herself across as much younger. You know, that sudden tone where she goes, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a little kid thing to it do. It really yeah. is, isn't it? <laughs> so if we're, if we're talking about parents, it, it was only, I think last year, I realised it was Alison Janney as Ricky's mum. She's so different looking from how she normally comes across. And, and her characters are normally these sort of very vivacious, larger-than-life type characters. I suddenly watched it and went, wow, that's Alison Janney. And she is amazing in everything. I think you said before, Vivian, there, there was a lot cut out of her lines with Ricky's dad and, and talking to Ricky himself as well. Mm-hmm. I, I've always had this sort of headcanon that she's got some sort of um, mental issue or has had uh, an illness in the past or a lithium overdose or something that's caused her to be this way. But uh, watch it with my fiance. She said, no, she thinks she is just heavily depressed, downbeaten. This is how she lives her life. Is is that how you see it? Do you have any thoughts on uh, a headcanon for why she is the way she is? Okay, you you saw her husband, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, if, if her husband will punch her son, then he probably punches her too. You know, we we never saw it explicitly on screen, but her reactions are very much those of an abused wife. Okay. And I saw a woman who lives in a shell because she's terrified of her life. And, you know, there was that moment where... Uh, she was quiet and it was, I think it was when Ricky had just brought Jane over mm. 
and they were trying to get her attention and she kind of comes to and says, oh, I'm sorry about the way everything looks. Oh, yeah. But the house is spotless. And so so that leads me to believe that she's gotten, you know, quote unquote, in trouble with her husband if things haven't been exactly the way he wants them to be. And and I know this is a lot of speculation and interpretation, mm. but that's that's what I saw when I saw her was a woman who can't be herself because of who she's married to and and how he he treats her. We didn't really see him interact with her very much. We saw him interact with Ricky a lot, mm-hmm. but it it just seemed very telling to me, at least. Uh, what do you think, Vivian? Well, I. I think that she is really depressed. Um, I don't know if there was any particular moment like a lithium overdose or anything like that, but there is a beautiful scene actually where uh, Ricky's about to come home and Frank and his wife are sitting on the couch and he's sitting right in the middle with his legs spread out doing the whole man spreading thing. Mm -hmm. And she is pushed off to the side. Like she takes no room in that house. She's so detached. She doesn't look comfortable, relaxed at home or anything. She just, it's its just like this body walking around. There's no one home kind of thing with right. her. Yeah. I actually would have liked a little bit more. Like if she did, if they hadn't cut out some of her dialogue, that would have been nice. Mm. Just to get a little bit of a better sense of her. But there's still so much in her performance that you can really read into a lot of it. Yeah, and of course, if he is gay, he probably doesn't show much affection to her. Oh, he definitely doesn't. There's nothing like that. No. Has had a yeah. son, done the thing he needs to do. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, thank you. Now, I did want to ask you guys about this, because when I was watching the movie, I actually watched it with Jason, and hmm. I was saying to him, you know, oh, you know, he's he's closeted, and he's, you know, really angry at himself, uh, like he's very self-hating, and I assume that he's gay. And Jason was saying, no, I don't think he's gay. I was like, what movie are you watching? Because I feel like we're watching two different movies. This guy is obviously gay. But he was saying, no, I don't think so. I think that when he kisses Lester at the end, he's just trying to figure out if Ricky was lying to him or not. Oh, okay. Oh, I think that I Jason think is okay. wrong. <laughs> I won't say that he's wrong, but I will say I did not interpret it that way at all. Yeah. I mean, he was so, like, devastated to even be there and then to be rejected on top of that. I feel like I hesitate to say that he's gay, but that's coming at it from a 2017 perspective. From a 1999 perspective, I feel like that's what they were actually trying to say is, you know, that's the reason he's so mean and that's why he's so strict with Ricky and and things like that is because he's been, you know, hiding all of these own feelings that he has. Mm -hmm. And that routine and discipline has helped him hide Mm -hmm. for so many years in the army. Yeah. um, And just in his regular life that he thinks it will, you know, be able to keep whatever it is in Ricky at bay. Yeah. I I think the fact that he kills Lester for knowing his secret um, is the thing that convinces me of that. It's a really nice, like, take on it. 
Um, but no, I think his then his further reaction is what sells it. There is also a bit in the script that I read um, where they have he he's the only character who has flashbacks as written, um, and there are flashbacks to him in I think Vietnam having a gay lover who is then killed, and he believes that God is punishing him for his sin. Oh goodness! Um, which would have been quite hard to textualize properly within flashbacks. You would have had to have had them having a conversation about it. Is this sinful? And then him coming to the realisation after the guy's dead later. So, yeah, again, good it was taken out because we don't need that much. Hey, he's gay. Hey, he's gay, but he hates gay people. Hey, he's gay. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's done subtly enough in the film that you can uh, take it away well. Yeah, I read somewhere that there was supposed to be a scene, actually, where Frank goes to his office and he sees that the doors to his cabinet are like opened or that something was moved around. And the reason that he's so angry is because he had a picture of himself and his ex lover uh, uh, in that okay. cabinet that he was trying to hide. So he was very worried that Ricky had seen it, which mm. is why he is so aggressive with him. Yeah. Later in the movie, but they decided to uh, to cut out him finding out that uh, that Ricky was there, so that the punch, the very literal punch, <laughs> uh, would uh, would have more impact. Yeah. Yeah. Again, better without that. Mm-hmm, mm. mm-hmm. We can infer a lot. Yeah. You know. And and it's actually a lot of uh, particularly the Fitz family that have the the theme of the not the theme the imagery of the film with everything being done through a window or a camera or some sort of reflection when Lester goes goes out running with Jim and Jim and they come up to the Fitzes. Colonel Fitz is cleaning the car and where he's cleaning it you can see the reflection of them running towards him and just mm-hmm. everything in this film is people seeing something through some other lens so something is barred from them whether it's by a window or a camera or a video or something but they're then seeing further into it so it's it's always got that symbolism of seeing beneath the surface like you were talking at the beginning Mandy the roots of the the pretty flower there's a lot more going on that we don't see mm-hmm. yeah well the tagline for this movie was look closer mm, and yeah. I've never heard a more apt tagline so mm. There's definitely a lot of layers in this movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I encourage you to watch it again. <laughs> I, I do like mm-hmm. that Jim and Jim are, and, and this is something that the, the director's talked about, I'm assuming on a commentary or something, but about how Jim and Jim are the most boring couple in it. You know, they're very happy with each other. They're very comfortable, very confident. And and the, and the bit where they go to the Fitzes to give them the welcoming basket, they're they're the one who seems to go. The Burnhams don't go and say hello. And they have this... Which is surprising. It seems yeah. like Carolyn would go over and at least give them, like, roses. <laughs> yes. Um, right, yeah. And, and he makes a comment about, you know, oh, you, you've said your partners, what's your business? And, and it seems so practiced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you said your partner, so uh, what's your business? Well, he is a tax attorney. And he's an anesthesiologist. And then they just leave it hanging in the air. And it's like, yeah, it, this is just the way we live now. Just move on. Yeah. 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 Na- now they would be married, of course, but at that point they were just living together. Mm. Hooray for normalization. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Matthew, why don't you tell us some of your favorite moments from the movie? Uh, we, we've talked about the moment at the end with 
the way Lester treats Angela when he learns that this would be her first time, so he suddenly becomes a, a more paternal figure to her. At, at that point, watching it in the cinema, I can remember watching it and going, oh, no, the film's throwing me out here, I, I can't buy this, because suddenly as they start going through this, she's breathing faster, she's really nervous, she suddenly seems not sure of herself, and it, uh, just watching it, I can remember feeling like, oh, she's not acting very well, I, I don't buy that, that she's uh, so experienced as she's sort of talked about being. And then when suddenly she says this, it's like, oh, okay, actually the acting is so good it has given me the answer without realising. And the turn from Severi at that point, just the confident lady into this very nervous girl, it's it's wonderful and it absolutely sells the the moment of the film. There's, There's not much in it that can throw you out and that's just, it's so well done. And I think you start to see seeds of that even before she starts talking to Lester. When mm-hmm. she's in the bedroom with Jane and Ricky, like, she's not very confident. She's sort of just yelling out all these things because you can see that she's so scared of losing Jane. Yes, um, yeah. And then when she does see Lester for the first time, like, she's saying, I had a fight with Jane. And, and he goes up to her and he's so gentle with her. Mm-hmm. And she's not confident at all in those moments. Like, she really needs his reassurance. So I think we were expecting her to be, you know, very flirtatious and for her to sort of appear as she does in his fantasies. And right away you see she's not like that. There's something off here. Yeah. And when she goes up to him... That that evening when she comes in and she goes up to him and, and he's suddenly got this confidence and this new sort of persona... And he goes, you know, do you like muscles? And and you you see it in her face. <laughs> Such She's an like, awkward line. <laughs> yeah, she goes, oh shit, this just got real. I'm gonna I'm gonna walk away now. <laughs> yep, she's like, um, yeah. I need to see what Jane is doing, and also not to be here. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. I think that coming to the end of the movie and knowing what we know about Angela now, when you think about her earlier scenes, it does seem very clear that that her confidence was all bluster. You know, there there are some nuances in her performance that I think I'd probably pick up on more when I watch it again. But, you know, everything that she talks about, she she's just a little bit too loud. She's just a little bit too, you know, exorbitant about the things that, that she's talking about that I think that that's an intentional choice yeah. to show that she's really not all of these things that she's saying she is. Mm-hmm. And none of the moments that she talks about have any love in them like she's saying that some photographer just like exposed himself to her she's saying that she enjoys the idea that boys at school masturbate to her like all of these moments there's nothing that contains love either so it's like she's really trying to tell everybody hey look at me i'm a sexual object like Mm. it's it's really kind of pathetic yeah, especially rewatching, it's uh, it's sad. And, and of course, I've mentioned several times through. This is for me one of the most beautiful films. It's I wouldn't talk about it in the same way I might talk about uh, two thousand and one or, or Mad Max Fury Road that has these just extraordinary shots. This film has very ordinary shots that are beautiful. The the framing so often where you see people dead center with things uh, symmetrical around them or or suddenly something's not symmetrical or it's off center because you know there's something going on all the different shots through like I said before through mirrors and windows and reflections so you can see something you wouldn't normally see uh, it's just it's so well crafted it takes my breath away as we go through 
we got uh, another bit of feedback from Becca Ella, who uh, said that this this may be her perfect movie for her. Um, I, I asked a little bit more about why. Uh, I think mostly it's just the way it's shot and lit and costumes and set. It's really beautiful. It seems a lot of attention was paid. And, and absolutely, you can see they they thought about the placement of every prop, the placement of the camera, the the lighting on each different person to whether it made them seem big or small. Uh, Mandy, I think you pointed out the uh, the moment when Lester's first talking to Brad, and he seems so small and adrift in the middle of the office, and Brad seems so big and dominating over him. Yeah, and they almost reverse that when he goes to the burger joint. He's sat quite confidently at the at the uh, counter, the booth, and the guy in the burger joint is sort of slouched down, a lot smaller than him, with his just like, oh, I think you're going to fit in here. <laughs> but it's a really nice reversal of the moment we've had earlier. Right. Mm. Yeah, I think Sam Mendez's background in theatre really helped um, this movie. Yeah. Because the way he composes a lot of shots, it looks like a play. Um, he keeps the characters in the same shots. Like, he doesn't do these extreme close-ups. He just does a lot of slow push-ins. Mm-hmm. Like, especially um, those scenes at the dinner table. Uh, those are beautiful scenes. Mm. Like, it's so lovely. And you can really see his background coming in through there. Yeah, and that whole... Yeah. The, the first push-in is... It's one shot as Jane comes in, they have the whole thing, and then she storms off a bit later. That's just one shot, just gradually getting mm-hmm. slower. And it, it, it the, I said before about the tension, it really is tense because it's like you're representing a from some sort of psycho killer type <laughs> horror movie or something, someone creeping into a house. And it really feels like an invasion. It doesn't cut until she goes out of the room and then you get that wonderful reaction from Carolyn of raising her glass and her eyebrow at Lester. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're so used to seeing a lot of cuts in movies that Mm. when you have one long scene, especially a static kind of scene like that, where not a lot of action is happening, um, we're not, you know, taking one continuous shot but moving through rooms, it starts to feel a little uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah. I've been taking screenshots as I've been watching it on my computer, so I will be posting them on uh, social media when this comes out, I think. Mm. Vivian, what are some of your uh, favorite bits of this film? Oh, there's so many. Uh, (laughs) I I just love this movie. There's really great comedic moments, um, Mm. particularly when when Carolyn is, is, you know, sitting there uh, wait or standing there waiting for Lester to come out of the house. Uh, she, you know, she's driving them all to work and to school and she's saying, Oh, I'm not late enough. You know, can you make me any more late? And Lester does this sort of shrug and his briefcase falls open oh. and everything pours <laughs> out. Oh, it's just, it's so pathetic, but it's so funny because the timing is perfect. Mm. Um, and then just Kevin Spacey's acting is phenomenal when he is talking about uh, how he he blackmailed his employer and he's not working anymore. And he's saying, oh, I didn't lose my job. It's not like, whoops, where'd my job go? I quit. Like, <laughs> he's so good. He's just so fantastic. And uh, the scene with Frank and Lester is definitely one of my favorites. I always just sort of like, I feel like I'm holding my breath the entire time. Because Kevin Spacey is so gentle with him in that scene. Like, even when when Frank goes to kiss him, he doesn't push him away. He's not disgusted. He just sort of very gently backs up and tells him, no, 
that you got the wrong idea sort of thing, but he's very sweet with him. And then Chris Cooper is so vulnerable. He's like this raw nerve and just watching him is electric. It's fantastic. So I love this movie. There's, I could basically like just tell you every scene, but those are probably like my three favorite moments. I think you kind of hit the nail talking about Kevin Spacey because my very favorite thing about this movie is Kevin Spacey, specifically Mm -hmm. his face acting. And in so many scenes, you know, he's sitting there in silence, but you can tell exactly what's going on in his head based on the expression on his face, you know, and it, he looks completely different during the scenes where he's fantasizing about Angela than he does when he's actually talking to his wife or rather when he's listening to his wife, you know, and, and things like that. And you could always tell exactly what was going on in Lester's head just based on Kevin Spacey's face. And I thought that was fantastic. And it was one of the first things that I picked up on as enjoying in the movie. Once I finally figured out this isn't just about some creepy old dude, (laughs) you know, I was starting to really enjoy Lester because of Kevin Spacey, even when I didn't like Lester as a person. And, and so that is always, always going to go a long way with me. And then my, I think my favorite scene that he did though, was the scene in the car um, when he starts singing along with American woman Mm -hmm. and he's just so free and, you know, he's having so much fun and he's just finally getting to be a version of Lester that he wants to be. And of course I looked up the scene and found out he improved the whole thing. It wasn't. Oh, beautiful. You know, if you guys know me at all, you know that whenever I find out somebody improv something I love, that it just completely puts me in awe and I love it even more. So I think, um, yeah, Kevin Spacey was definitely the high point of this movie for me. And and I love the juxtaposition of him having a moment of triumph, going to the burger joint and getting a job. You know, and and you know, finding something. Well, regressing back to his his the best time in his life. But again, if this was a different film, if this was a proper coming of age story, that would be okay. He's moved into something else. She has a moment of triumph and goes to the burger joint and gets completely caught and unravels at that point. Mm-hmm. And even the bit where she's driving along singing and she's driving, she's singing to "No One Rain on My Parade," and then he absolutely rains on her parade. She's annoyed at him for spending money that she doesn't think she has. And then he calls her out with her. This is a $4,000 sofa upholstered in Italian silk. This is not just a couch. Moment. Oh my goodness. Okay. That moment is, it's so great, but I know that I'm not supposed to sympathize with her, but I kind of get it. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, no, 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 no. Because every time I'm watching it, I'm thinking, oh, that beer is going to spill. That beer is going <laughs> to spill on that couch. And that looks like an expensive couch. So <laughs> oh, I'm terrible. Apparently, I'm not romantic. Um. <laughs> yeah, because I had the complete exact opposite reaction there. I felt so bad for him. I was like, he is finally, finally giving up on this stupid fantasy of a teenager. And he is trying to be romantic with his wife and he's actually like physically present and here for her Mm. and all she can think about is the stupid couch yeah you know it it killed me it killed me 
It's like, logically, I know that, but then I see the beer. (laughs) 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 And all I can think about is, it's going to be a pain in the ass to clean up. (laughs) If you are going to own a $4,000 couch, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (sighs) I think that Annette Bening is fantastic in this movie Mm. as well. When I was watching the commentary... Sam Mendes said that the scene where she's in the the open house and uh, she starts crying was mm. all just one take. Really? Wow. She, only, she only did it once wow. and it was beautiful. So they just moved on. I was like, are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> that was fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah. And she improvised a few lines here and there. Um, uh, her rant when she's saying oh carolyn do you mind taking care of everything being the you know sole breadwinner that was all improvised um and when she walks into the house early on in the movie and she's talking about the old neighbors who got angry at them for cutting down their their sycamore or whatever it was uh a lot of those lines were also improvised so she did a a really great job in this movie Yeah, Kevin Spacey did an interview where he was talking about her and he said that, you know, on set all the time, she kind of stayed in character as Carolyn and did Mm. so much improv as the character (laughs) that um, he said he didn't know how her husband put up with it when she went home. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I guess she was given like a tape of music that Carolyn would listen to before they started doing rehearsals and, and filming. And I guess she was listening to it, like, constantly just to get in character. And you can really tell because when she's doing that that scene in the car and singing along to Don't Rain on My Parade, like, it's it's just Carolyn through and through. Like, that's her. I don't even feel like I'm watching someone act. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's such an interesting juxtaposition, too, when you think of the, the song that she's singing loudly in her car and the song that... Luster is singing loudly in his car and just how Mm. different these two people are from each other. Yeah, you sort of wonder, how did they ever end up together? But then when he starts talking about how she used to be, then you go, oh, okay. Yeah, I I think married suburban life changed both of them significantly. Yeah, it took a lot of life out of them. Yeah. Well, you guys, is there anything else that we need to discuss about American Beauty? Because we've talked about a lot. I thought this was hilarious. Uh, As I was watching the commentary, Sam Mendes said that originally, Lester Burnham was going to be superimposed into the opening overhead shot of the neighborhood, and he was going to be flying, and then eventually he was going to arrive at his house. And that's such a weird thing to think about, like... They decided to cut it out because it wasn't really appropriate for the tone of the movie. Right. But I'm trying to imagine, like, this, you know, Lester in, like, his pajamas just flying through the neighborhood. And I don't think I could have taken this movie seriously if that happened. (laughs) Yeah. It would just, it would just seem too weird. Yeah, I think it was weird enough the way they set it up between Mm -hmm. the creepy video and then the peppy voiceover about death moving into the upbeat song. You know, if you had added Lester flying, that would have just been way over the top, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad they cut that out. (laughs) Yes. We got a really interesting comment on Twitter from a friend of the show, Abigail, who's also British. 
this A.E. Shaw on Twitter. First time I saw it, I thought it nailed everything that scared me about America. Fifteen years on, I think that's still true. Vivian, you asked for a bit more detail about what it was that scared her. Um, Repression, guns at home, boredom, small men, ignorance, nothingness, blandness and bleakness. It felt so existentially hollow and yet real. I I think the question is first off, do, do you agree with that? But also as North Americans, how does that resonate with you? Do you know people in this situation? Does it feel real? It's it's a little bit different because, well, this movie doesn't resonate with me in terms of like me seeing my own life through it. Um, my family is nothing at all like uh, like Lester's family or the Fitz or anything. Which thank goodness. Um, <laughs> but one of the biggest things is guns at home. There's I've never known anyone with guns, okay. unless they were like a hunting rifle. But even then, maybe one person I know with a hunting rifle. So, yeah. Oh, I guess that leaves it up to me being from the <laughs> south America. of the United States. You know, lots, <laughs> I know lots of people with guns at home. You know, but I think my first question is really all of these things that, that Abby listed, are they really just things that happen in America? I mean... <sighs> I guess maybe that's just my privilege speaking, but I feel like that's not just things to be scared of here. It's kind of things to be scared of in the world. I don't know. No, I think I think I understand what you mean, because it's not like you can't be repressed in England or in Saudi Arabia, anywhere. You can be repressed anywhere. Um, and you can be overwhelmed with nothingness and bleakness, um, anywhere. So, but I think that the movie is trying to tell us in a way that the American dream has failed because they try so hard to really keep up the appearance of their happy life, but they feel none of it. Okay. And so I think there's, there's that part of it Mm -hmm. that really speaks to you know, this movie being American, but also the American dream doesn't really seem all that American to me because we have the same idea in Canada too, like, right. you know, success, money, you get a house, you have kids and this, we're striving for pretty much the same thing. Right. So, but I do agree that it does feel very hollow and yet real at the same time. Uh, and you can see parts of either your life or like the lives of other people in this movie, and that can make it really kind of scary. Yeah, yeah. I think I think Abby's trying to equate, you know, what sh- what she sees in the movie with kind of what's happening currently in the United States right now, um, and and the words that she uses here definitely apply to both. Absolutely. Um, small men, ignorance, nothingness, nothingness, blandness, and bleakness. God, yes, it's so awful. Um, but I think in my brain, I just don't equate the two because one is about that American dream and having the perfect family and, you know, living the life that you think you should have. And the other one is real life to me right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I'm having a hard time. Um, looking at the two through the same lens. And I, so I, I think that's where I'm struggling 
to find um, relevance there, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Before we wrap up, uh, Vivian, do you have any recommendations to go on Mandy's list of things to see? I do. Um, my first recommendation is not actually for the list because, well, it would take a long time for you to do this. Um, is Six Feet Under? Um, you mentioned it earlier. It is written or like it's created by Alan Ball and it's just a fantastic show. Like it's, it's so good and I recommend it to everyone. Um, because there's so much depth there, but mm-hmm. it's also not one of these shows where you have to like rewatch every episode to understand what's really going on. Like it's not as, as hard to get sometimes as, as American Beauty can, can be, but it's just, it's lovely. It's really heavy though. It is about a family that owns a funeral home. And in the first episode, uh, their father dies and then they have to deal with all of that. So it's not a lighthearted, fun, happy show that you want to maybe watch on like a Friday night after a long week at work, but it is a fantastic show and it does have uh, Mina Savari in it for uh, a brief run in season four, I believe. So, But, but you're saying it's a show that has a lot of depth to it. Oh, yes, definitely. They deal with, with loss and abuse. Um, they deal with, uh, like, sexuality. There's a, there's a lot of stuff going on in that show. Uh, it's really great. And there's some fun, lighthearted moments, too, where you can kind of see, like, Alan Ball's um, love of theater and of musicals, because there's a lot of, like, these little dream sequence moments where they go into song, and that's that's a lot of fun. So it's a great show. That's five seasons. Say that sounds right up Matthew's alley. Yeah, as soon as you mentioned yeah, song, I, I yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't know if either of you have watched uh, Dexter, but M- Michael C. Hall is in uh, Six Feet Under, and he's just amazing. Okay, it's fantastic. Okay. Um, w- did you for the l- when you say it has a lot of depth? How pleased are you with that pun about Six Feet Under? <laughs> oh, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> Which is terrible. Uh, okay. I think Matthew was more pleased about that's, it than yours. That's right out of one of your shows. Call it out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. Well, the other recommendations that I have uh, could be put on the list because they're just movies. Um, the first one is The Usual Suspects, mm. which has um, Kevin Spacey in it, and it's really fun. Uh, it's got. It, it's just, it's a great movie, and I definitely recommend you watching it, uh, especially since you said that you love uh, Kevin Spacey so much in this movie. And the other is Ghost World, which I haven't seen twice. I only watched it, I think, once, maybe in high school, but I do remember enjoying it. And it was kind of like a bizarre type of movie, but it had Thora Birch, uh, Scarlett Johansson, and Steve Buscemi in it. That's an interesting group yeah i know right it it is right word for it (laughs) (laughs) okay uh well the usual suspects is actually on the list oh Um, excellent and the ghost world might be interesting maybe Mm. maybe i don't know you could see if anyone's interested put it on the list and see if anyone wants to talk to you about it (laughs) yeah sounds good terrific We got some feedback on Twitter about our Pretty in Pink episode. 
Uh, first, our friend Jen at IU Girl Jen says, I remain now and will always be hashtag Team Ducky. Blaine is the worst. <laughs> and Vivian, I believe that you agree with that. <laughs> I don't think he's the worst. I think he's just really bland. I don't think he has any personality. And that's why I don't like him. But I also don't like Ducky. So I am hashtag Team No One. <laughs> that is perfectly fair. Yeah. <laughs> And we also had a comment from Alan, at Chipper Alan, and he said, Hell math. Christy Swanson equals Buffy, plus waved over Ducky, then Ducky equals Xander. Alternate universe Buffy. And the reason I like this comment so much is because it makes sense to nobody who doesn't listen to Buffering the Vampire Slayer podcast. <laughs> so this is like a meta Buffy reference in a Buffy podcast too. It's just fantastic. <laughs> I love it. And it made me laugh. So I wanted to include it. Oh, just on that note, um, because you're both Buffy fans. Did you notice that one of the, um, one of the people touring the open house was the same actress who played the Inca mummy girl in Buffy? I missed that. I didn't, but that's nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's our there's our Buffy link. <laughs> yeah, thank you for saving us because I had nothing that was Buffy related for this one. <laughs> Other than Alan's comments. So, thank you. I'm going to have to go back and look at that scene just so that I can say that I actually saw it and understand it. <laughs> Is that the one touring with John Cho? Yes. Right. Yeah. I, I think it oh, might be, okay. I always recognize him, and I always wonder what's on her t-shirt. <laughs> it's the only thing I've ever seen her in. Well, I guess the two only things I've ever seen her in, so. Yeah. And originally, they were actually, all of those people were supposed to have lines, um, but they only decided to keep in the lagoon part. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I guess the scene was too long. He was just like, oh, yeah, we we don't need to talk that long. <laughs> You can keep this moving. Her name is Era Seeley. Has she been in much? Not a ton. She was on All My Children. And was Sarah Michelle Gillar on that? She was either on All My Children or Guiding Light. I think it was All My Children. Huh. Maybe that's her, like... <laughs> Maybe that's all she knew. And she also played Woman at Party in Bruce Almighty. Ah, oh. Woman at Party, of course. <laughs> mm, I remember the role well. <laughs> There are so many ways that you can get in touch with us if you want to give us your comments on this or any other movie we've discussed. You can use the hashtag PCDeprived on Twitter. You can find us on both Twitter and Facebook at Eloquent Gushing. You can also email us using podcast at eloquentgushing.com or you can comment on this post on eloquentgushing.com. And you can find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy K. And I'm at Matthew Vos. Vivian, where can people find you in the world? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Slayers, comma, the. Mm -hmm. uh, Slayers with an, like, an S at the end, because there's two. Or several, <laughs> if you've uh, watched the whole show. <laughs> and you can find uh, my podcast at multiverseradio.ca. And if you're a fan of Bob's Burgers or The Good Place, or you want to be a fan of either of those shows, then those uh, you can check out my podcast there. Excellent. Thoroughly recommended from all of us. Thank you, yes, very, thank you very much for joining us today. It was a really great conversation. Yeah, it was lovely talking to you guys. 
Um, Pop Culture Deprived is 100% funded by listeners like you through our Patreon page. Anything you can give, even $1 a month, gives access to exclusive content whilst also helping to support the network. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And if you want to keep up to date with the latest news and announcements, remember to subscribe to the weekly newsletter. The link is on eloquentgushing.com. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll talk about Thelma and Louise with Allie of the Lost Watch podcast. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm looking for the least possible amount of responsibility. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, go to eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.